Hey, good morning. Good morning. I am so happy to talk to you. I have so many questions. I've been <laughs> through your enormous body of work. And forgive me if I leap all over the place because there is so much to go into here. First of all, good morning. Apartway is uh, the force to be reckoned with behind the incredible company Moving Beyond, which helps you move boldly through the most important challenges of our time, which is quite a statement. Thank you. We try and do all of those things. I, and from what I can tell you, absolutely do. Now, because I always forget to ask questions about clothes, forgive me, I'm going to start off on a very light topic. You got to work with Nordstrom. Now, I know you were helping them integrate a race equity lens and responding with rapid action during COVID. But what I would love to know about is what was that experience like? Is there anything you can share with us without breaking confidentiality? Because hello, Nordstrom. Yeah, well, I'll just say that it was it was kind of intimidating to be working with Nordstrom because all of their um, employees and executives are incredibly well dressed. You can imagine that every outfit is exquisite. And so as somebody who, you know, is more of like a jeans and T-shirt kind of person, um, one of the things that working with them did was kind of up my style game. But, you know, in, in terms of race equity, what's really great about a company like Nordstrom is that they recognize that the workforce is changing and their customers are changing. And so they, um, in the time that I was working with them, really were making some meaningful changes in how they do business with suppliers and bringing more Black, Indigenous, and people of color, designers, um, labels, brands on board, they were really starting to think about how do they advance um, employees on the retail side that tend often to be women of color into leadership and management positions, how to train floor teams and security personnel um, to adjust expectations about what the customer looks like now and really build leadership capacity um, so that the people that are in charge of that are making the decisions are making ones with a lens towards the future. So it was a really, it was a really great engagement and, and I got to work with a lot of amazing women of color there. I would like to push back and say you dress superbly. You may prefer jeans and t-shirt, but I've been crawling all over your social media and your website doing a little bit of stalking. And you have a stunning sense of style. Your most common accessory is a microphone. <laughs> yeah, that happens. As a public speaker, you use what are some of the topics that you absolutely love to talk about? Oh my gosh. Well, my favorite thing in the last couple of years has really been the intersection of data and diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, using data to inform organization decisions about where to make investments. So that's been an absolute favorite topic. Um, I also, you know, my background is as an educator and an activist. And so the other thing that I really, really care about is addressing systemic barriers and institutional practices that make it really hard for people of color to grow in their careers and have access to opportunities and 
Um, in particular, um, I've had a focus on supporting women of color for many years, long before it was in vogue or sexy or trendy to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Speaking to that, I'd like to take you back to 2013. Slight segue, but still very, very relevant. Would you tell us about Project Feast? Yeah, um, I came together with uh, Veena Prasad. This is almost a decade ago. Um, at that time, I was working at Neighborhood House, which is a large social services organization in our region. You know, they've been around for more than 100 years. They started off settlement house for um, immigrant and refugees and, you know, continue even to, to this day working predominantly with immigrant and refugees in our area. And one of the things that I had noticed was there were all of these really amazing women, moms of kids that were in the programs that I was uh, leading who would bring food and they weren't bringing like a little casserole. I mean, they were cooking for like dozens and dozens and dozens of people. And Vina and I got together to create sort of a fair start like program for those women who clearly had skills that could be monetized and getting them trained to both cook and sell food legally, but also to do so kind of like in a commercial capacity, right? Um, and the first year that we were up and running, we had the like the honor of working with Burmese refugees, women from um, Iran and Iraq, as well as a lot of women um, who were displaced um, by wars in Somalia and ended up winning the Social Venture Partners Fast Pitch competition just nine months after getting Project Feast off the ground. Nine months is rather poignant and rather uh, an important, it, it makes total sense it would take nine months, which is absolutely an incredibly short time. Moving forward to 2015, Firky, am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, it's Firky. Would you tell me a little bit about that? I, I know I'm jumping you all over the place, but I have so, yeah, there's so much I want to go into. Sure. Yeah. So in 2014, I moved to India. In, I moved to India. I, I wanted, I wanted something different. And, you know, I, I, I spoke earlier about advocating for women of color. And so one of the things that I was finding in my own career stateside is that I would quickly go from being a pet um, of a mentor or a sponsor to being a threat when they realized that I was really smart and really ambitious. And so I was at a point in my life and in my career where I wanted to change a pace. And I moved to India and got, you know, the most amazing job ever helping launch and grow India's first teacher education platform, really designed for um, 80% of, you know, educators in India who don't have a lot of formal um, education themselves. They don't, they haven't gone to a four-year university. Um, they're often young women. They could even be sort of tenured educators, um, but they're kind of teaching in a way that's, I don't want to use the word antiquated necessarily, but they, they need some new skills because how young people learn today is very different than they did you know, 20 years ago. And so the goal of Firki um, is and was really to reach those folks 
that don't often have a four-year university degree and to build learning communities and cohorts all over the country um, so that they can kind of level up in how they teach and we built a pretty cool technology platform, like a very lightweight technology platform that works even in rural India with really limited sort of um, internet access and super mobile friendly um, and really kind of responsive sort of language wise. So we built it in several different languages, even in the first kind of instance of it. Apana? Yeah. Uh, forgive me, I thought I lost you for a minute. One million educators in its first year alone. Uh, well, it's easy to do in a country like India where there's 80 million teachers or maybe more. You know, it's a drop in the bucket, really. Well, it was an important drop. You have lived in six countries, but I can't find out which ones. You can't find out which one. So uh, before I moved to the States, um, I, you know, I was, of course, born in India. We lived in Nepal for a few years. We lived in the Emirates for a couple of years. And right before we moved to the States, we'd been living in Doha, Qatar. And since then, um, I've lived, and I think I've actually lived probably more than six. I lived in Peru for a short bit while doing research on an archaeological dig. Um, I've, I did my graduate work in Canada, lived there. Yeah. That's quite a passport. It gets full pretty fast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I've definitely been the person who's gone to the passport office before their passport has expired and asked for a new one because mine has run out of pages more than once. <laughs> yeah, I can relate. And there's so many more countries for you to explore. Leaping forward a little future for us, which was 2019, which yep. is to advance women of colour. You yep. grew a... a an incredible professional community. Would you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. So, you know, I I talked I talked a little I talked a little bit about like going to India because I was frustrated. Well, in 2016, because of who won the election, um, I had to come back, right? And you're an immigrant as well. So you know that um, we can't have our residency lapse or expire, right? And when Donald Trump won the election in 2016, I knew for immigration reasons, I had to come back to the States and I, I couldn't continue living in India. And of course, you know, some things had changed, but a lot of things hadn't changed. And um, in the time that I lived in India, I kind of had started to forget about like racism stateside I'd like really forgotten that I was a second class citizen here by virtue of my skin color or my accent or where I come from and so when I came back to Seattle in 2017 I was really jolted back into the reality of, of being an immigrant and a person of color in the United States so I got together with Sage Kiamno um, at the end of 2018 and we said look something has to change you know, like we can't, we cannot continue to experience the work in which so many of us do 
Um, and there has to be a different way of doing work for women of color. And so we really, honestly, we started Future For Us, not even as an organization so much as we wanted to create kind of a day long um, conference networking experience for women of color in Seattle. And when we did the launch party for it in January of 2019, we thought, look, you know, 50, 70 people will show up. Maybe 100 people are going to show up because they don't even know what this is. And also, we don't know what this is going to be yet. And we had a guest list with 500 people and a line out the door on like a super kind of wet, rainy day in Seattle in January, like hundreds of women and men and people of all races and ethnicities and genders showed up for this launch event. And in that moment, we knew that this was something worth building. And, you know, a few months later, we had we had that conference um, with over 400 women of color. Um, there were some jokes that day about how we needed security because all the women of color in Seattle were at our event. Um, and that was the, the start of something pretty exciting. Um, we, you know, we ended up going on a road show, seven cities uh, in September and October. It wrapped with a big event in Seattle at the Riveter that was completely sold out and busting at the seams. We also did a summit that was, you know, sold out within days of launching the tickets, um, focused on companies and what they can do um, to improve not only the numbers of women of color in their organizations, but how to make their organizations inclusive and have sort of equitable policies and practices. Um, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. It was a really exhausting year. We were on the road a lot. I think we did. We must have done over 100 speaking engagements. Was there much video footage of, of that of that tour? Was there transcriptions? I mean, this is a book. This is a documentary. Yeah, there's there's a lot of footage. There's I mean, there's just there's so much from that year um, that I, you know, when the when the pandemic came and things shut down, unfortunately, we, we lost momentum. You know, we built Future for Us really as an in-person experience and we weren't prepared for what happened last year. So I hope that like, you know, one day soon it gets picked back up and we get to wade through and make sense of a lot of that stuff that we have and the experiences that we built. There's so much content there, but the experience, the shared experience, I am missing women so much to be around women, to, to learn from them, to be inspired by them. Uh, I, know, I know Future for Us will get back on track because of the impact that it made and because of uh, the experience that all those women, all, all those women share, with moving beyond, and that's movingbeyond.co. You, yeah, you you help companies in so many different ways, but you are still educating through your labs. Would you tell me a bit about the labs that you offer? Yeah, um, thanks for asking. So the labs are like I would say a pretty special part of what we do, and. It, it really is, you know, leaning heavily, heavily, heavily into my prior life as an educator and somebody who worked in adult learning. So 
the idea for the labs is an old one, right? I told you that with Firki, we have these cohorts and communities of practice all over the country in India. Um, and when I came back to the States, I had a really wonderful opportunity to um, support and facilitate a lab, a lab experience that was funded by the Kellogg Foundation. So when I started moving beyond, I knew, I knew a couple of things. I knew one that, you know, our journey through diversity, equity, and inclusion and an organization's journey through DEI is not a linear one. And there isn't, you know, anything that's like a canned process that you can implement and get, get some kind of results, right? It's, it needs to be um, personal, it needs to be custom, it needs to take into the factors um, that make the organization what it is. And so the labs are kind of a super low cost model that make it possible for organizations to learn together in, I would say, a pretty affordable way. The starting point uh, per person is just $3,500, which is, which is not a lot for a year-long learning experience. And it's an offer for us as Moving Beyond also to experiment about um, use different approaches, like pull ideas from different sectors, bring in coaches. This year, for instance, um, we've had the participants do the Enneagram as a way to kind of gain more insights about themselves. In prior years, we've used other kinds of assessments. Um, but the, the fun part, the really, really fun part about the lab is that every organization goes out and does an assessment of their employees, their colleagues, um, and they use that to then start to build strategies for DEI in their company. And that kind of a personalized approach is, I think, I mean, for me is what makes it, what makes it really fun. And along the way, you know, these like five or six organizations build such great camaraderie with each other. And I've, I've noticed over the years that they'll like, they'll stay friends and they'll stay colleagues and they'll pass business um, back and forth um, with each other. So yeah, it's, it's super fun. It's super special. It takes a lot of work and it definitely doesn't make any money at all. <laughs> yeah, $3,500 to invest in this is nothing. While, while I was listening, the personalized approach, one size does not fit all. That applies to clothing as well as DEI. The fact that mm. you're connecting these companies, that they are creating networks of companies that are that are focused on uh, similar goals. And Enneagram, speaking of fun, what Enneagram are you? I am a social two. Ah. You see, I'm a seven. I like to hide my head in the sand. <laughs> Just color me an ostrich. I've got these multicolored feathers that are sticking out of my butt, but my head, I am down under the sand pretending I'm at Disneyland. But a social two and fun. Humor is so important to bring to this topic. Can you tell me more about why? Oh my gosh, for all of the reasons that humor is important, you know, kind of no matter what is happening, right? I think it, it grounds us. It grounds us. Um, but when you think about, you know, let's just say like in the US context, when you think about the why for investing in diversity, equity, and inclusion, what ends up happening is a lot of people want to talk about um, 
you know, structural and racial inequities, they exist. They are very real. I think that if we actually took time to think deeply about the choices that people have made in this country, um, that's a really harsh reality. And without humor, you know, we can stay in a swirl where we know that things are really bad, but we feel stuck and we don't know how to move them forward. And I think um, humor lets us break that a little bit. And it's also kind of like a shared um, shared quality we can enjoy about each other. Um, for a lot of my, you know, sort of, most of my white male middle-aged clients, um, they of course haven't experienced racism. How could they? Um, they haven't experienced the, you know, the daily discrimination, like where you can't even walk into a grocery store and just walk out without a microaggression by a store employee or by another shopper. Um, so humor is a way to connect. Um, humor is a way to make work relevant. And, and I think my personality is such that I just, like, I just want, I want to enjoy my life. I don't want to be... Um, stuck in this dark, depressive, and also abstract place where I can't see the solution. So I like to laugh a lot. Um, I like to crack a lot of jokes. And it's, you know, I think it disarms, it disarms a lot of my clients that think I'm a kind of a serious, intimidating person, which I'm not. No, I can tell from your photos, you've got such a beautiful smile. Humor breaks down so many barriers and when a subject is so serious it's the reason for comedies it's i realize i'm segueing but sometimes we just need a little bit of an emotional relief and when we laugh together it creates such a connection yeah it really does another way that you teach through movingbeyond.com you can also find a partner at anaray.com which has got some fascinating blogs on it which i'll get to but another way that you help teach is you have courses uh, you help people with cultural shifts. Uh, there are things like uh, diversity inclusion. You also do, uh, yeah, which is DNI mastery, which is not do it yourself. It's actually it's nothing to do with Home Depot. It is DNI mastery, and we've got DNI one hundred and one and this land. What is the course this land, and what does that mean? Oh my gosh, that is a course that's really been like a passion project for me. Um, yeah, so, you know, Aaron, like where you come from, right, you know that there's at least an acknowledgement that Indigenous, Native, Maori people were the original caretakers of that land. And um, in the United States, that's not true, right? Like we are constantly, and I think in this moment in particular, when we see all of this legislation trying to suppress um, teaching just basic history, right? Like facts that are irrefutable. Um, in this moment, I think it's just so important to know what the history of this land is. And that's one of the ways I think that, you know, we, we start to make sense of the decisions that we make. So, I'm developing this course um, with a um, former colleague from Neighborhood House. His name is David Mosier, and he's also a faculty at Seattle University. He's an activist. He's just an incredible human being who, like me, um, is on a journey to like kind of dig deeper, like dig under the foundation and really uncover what we're sitting on. And so the, the course has kind of four parts. 
Um, it explores the history of the racial formation in the United States vis-a-vis -vis land access. And then it kind of moves into housing policies and government sanctioned um, laws that make it next to impossible for people of color, in particular black folks, from owning land. We, we uncover also kind of our, our more recent history. Um, you know, 80 years ago, sort of the exclusion and expulsion of Japanese Americans and their internment and what happens to their land, which is really fascinating. And, you know, the, the, short, the short story is that a lot of white folks um, really advocated for sending Japanese Americans to these internment camps and took their land. And the government signed off on that. And then a few decades later, there's a push for desegregation. And again, we see, you know, really heavy handed redlining happening across the country where white folks don't want to even live in the same neighborhoods as people of color and are creating these super restrictive um, zones. And, you know, since we, we live in Seattle, we know that, for instance, the International District is called that because that's where all of the Asians were allowed to live. They couldn't live anywhere else. Same with the Central District. That's where Black Americans, African Americans, Blacks were allowed to live. They weren't allowed to live in Capitol Hill or Queen Anne or, you know, other places. And so, so it explores all of that history. It explores sort of common um, current um, movements and trends. And then it leaves the um, participants with solutions on what's possible. What can each one of us do to make things better, to um, engage in reparations, to make choices that start to halt um, a legacy of institutionalized discrimination? I'm just taking all that on board. Uh, I've been really enjoying your blogs as well. Uh, another slight segue. Uh, you can find um, Apana on appyray.medium.com. Before I go there, what's appyray? How did you end up with appyrae? <laughs> just FYI. How did you end up with that? Oh my gosh. Appy is my nickname. Appy <laughs> is my nickname. It's been kind of my nickname for a long time. When I was growing up in India, there was like a drink called Appy Fizz. And um, I have curly hair. You probably know this from stalking me on social media that I have a big head of curly hair. And so... Yeah, I got this nickname inspired by the drink Appy Fizz when I was a teenager, and it's just kind of stuck. And I, yeah, I mean, my my close friends call me Appy, my mom calls me Appy, and it's just been my social media handle, I don't know, for more than a decade, you know, like 15 years. And Appy Ray is a dreamer, a doer, and a dissenter. And I love having all of those three words in one sentence because uh, dream about a better dream about a better world. But uh, oh, what was that? What was that phrase? Dream about an ocean cruise, but keep keep rowing. Um, so dreamer, doer, and dissenter. One of the blogs. Part of the reason I keep my head buried in the sand is one of your blogs is a subject very close to my heart, 
which is suicide prevention. Do you feel comfortable sharing why that's important to you and a refusal never offends? Yeah, um, well, my brother um, committed suicide a year and a half ago. And, you know, it's, um, I think one of the things that gets lost in our immigrant experience is this tension of, the values that we deal with inside our homes and the values of the world outside. And so, you know, growing up South Asian, we don't talk about mental health. We don't acknowledge it. You know, our parents, um, I think our parents almost take, take a personal, take it personally that we need or want help um, or that we might even be struggling. And so, my brother struggled for a really long time with his mental health from the time he was a little kid and continued to struggle through his teenage years. And, you know, he went in the most unfortunate fashion. And so, yeah, it, it, to me, you know, talking about these personal things is a way to start to normalize our truths and our realities and our struggles um, as immigrants, as people of color, um, as people that come from cultures that are, you know, so, so deeply patriarchal, so closed, um, that don't value or make room for really growing and healing from intergenerational trauma. So thanks for asking me. I mean, it's not, it's not a secret. And yeah, I'm happy to talk about it anytime because there's no other way. There's no other way to heal. And when I started talking about his struggles and when he died, I must have had dozens and dozens and dozens of Indian women reach out to me and say, thank you for sharing. My sibling is struggling and I'm trying to convince my parents or, you know, people coming out and sharing with me their own losses and um, a desire to build community to heal. I really appreciate you speaking to that. Uh, a friend of mine whose brother was diagnosed schizophrenic is struggling with her parents who have turned to things like astrology or uh, blessings. Uh, that, that's her story to tell, but, but she struggled with educating her family uh, about that particular illness. What, what's helped me in the past is finding people like me who've been through the same experiences is there any resources particularly suited for people of color, people like your brother, to reach out to? Oh, so in the Seattle area, you know, one of the places that I've looked um, is API Chaya. It's a nonprofit organization. Um, Virginia Mason also has a counseling program for individuals who've, you know, who've experienced loss through like a traumatic, um, like a traumatic death, you know, someone's committed suicide or um, been shot and killed, you know, like really horrible things or, um, I don't know that there's any one resource that has resonated with me in particular. The, the thing that honestly has helped is having this amazing community of women of color who have conversations openly 
you know, and people who validate that all of these experiences that we're having are really normal. And so what I encourage, honestly, what I encourage folks to do is yes, like you can Google search and find dozens of incredible resources, but take care of your people like at home, you know, like really listen deeply. If somebody says they're hurting, if somebody, you know, is withdrawn, like take that seriously. Um, especially when there are siblings and our, our family members and our friends. And the other thing is, and this is, you know, like South Asians aren't the only ones that take the cake for hiding um, and not talking about the hard stuff. Um, I think it's true across many or probably most cultures is um, name a thing a thing, you know, talk about it. And this isn't just about mental health. Um, I think it, you know, it spans even our careers. When we don't talk about the things that are difficult, we give this, we give this illusion that things, things are easy or things are glossy. And like, guess what? They're not, you know, like a lot of us have gotten fired from jobs. Like we need to talk about it. A lot of us have had miscarriages. We need to talk about it. You know, a lot of my friends are like struggling to conceive right now and they talk about it openly because that's the only way to build awareness that our lives aren't sort of this kind of glossy, peaceful stroll in the park. You know, there are a lot of wet, rainy days and we need each other to get through it. Speaking of wet, rainy days, we happen to live in Seattle. And as for the shiny, um, yes, be honest, be vulnerable, reach out. You are not alone. Uh, you, There are people who will validate your experience. They will share their stories. They will be there for you. And looking after your own is a beautiful way. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me with that. Back to Shiny, I was thinking about Instagram, which can, social media can curate to make it seem as if our lives are all, um, you know, chocolate cake days. But luckily for me, your Instagram has a lot of dogs on it, which always <laughs> what, yeah. what are the dogs? Who are the dogs? What are yeah. the dogs? Tell me about the dogs. Uh, oh, my gosh. Um, so, you know, I grew up without any pets. And um, anybody that knows me knows that I've had my own sort of journey through um, tolerating and I would say maybe I've started to enjoy pets now. Um, so there are two dogs in my life that are featured predominantly in my social media. One of the dogs actually is my brother's. Um, he, he is a pet boxer mix. He's 10 years old. His name is Marlo. And, you know, my brother always wanted a dog. And so when he finally got a home of his own, he and his partner adopted Marlo from a rescue in Denver. And after he died, we got to bring him home with us. And he's he's such a love. He's really, really funny. Um, he's super snuggly. So that's one of the dogs. And the other dog is my partner's dog. Um, she's like a seven pound, teeny tiny Maltese with, you know, the most intense resting bitch face for a dog. Um, she's a she's a she's a little bit of a grandma dog too she's 14 and she's real sassy she's real sassy and there are definitely moments where I feel like you know she's kind of a bitch 
And then I'm like, oh, I do these things too. So um, it's like looking looking at a tiny dog version of yourself sometimes. Um, but yeah, she's 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 very funny. She's very feisty. She has some like rural. I don't know. I mean, I guess because I've never lived with animals before this past year and a half, I just didn't know all of the really funny things that they do. And so Luna, you know, we, we also have a cat. They chase each other a lot. The cat sort of attacks the dog. It's, it's, it's been the source of like really good free entertainment during the pandemic, um, just watching pets. I mean, I've never done that before. But we spend a lot of our time and I spend a lot of my time just kind of watching their antics. <laughs> they, they could be so much fun. And she sounds, there was nothing wrong with being a bitch. And um, I, that word we need to reclaim anyway. And she is the perfect size for a handbag uh, from a designer of color. So keep that in mind. <laughs> dog basically spends most of her time asleep and wanting to lie in the sun. So so that works out. Yeah, I, I, I can definitely see the likeness. I love the sound of your dog. We, we um, And yes, yes, mine is highly entertaining and she really helped get me through COVID, especially since uh, I was able to hold her, cuddle her, talk to her, take her, take, her, take her out for company and I didn't need to social distance. What is a dabber and why did your mother make you one? Oh, what's a dabba? And why did my mother make me one? Um, a dabba just means like a box, right? But like a dabba is colloquial for like a tiffin or like a lunchbox. And like a yeah, it's like a little, yeah, it's like a little container of food. And why does my mom make me one? Why does any Asian mother force feed their children? I mean... I think if we can solve for that, we may actually be able to solve for global peace. Um, you know, my mom is like any any other mom. Um, she loves feeding me. And, you know, as like the solo kid now, I mean, I get all of her attention. And yeah, when she makes like yummy things that she knows I love, I often get a little lunchbox to take with me to work. I may have to queue up outside her door. Circling back, you can find API Chaya, and I have been to some of their events, and they're absolutely incredible. They do empower survivors of gender-based violence and human trafficking, among other things. Uh, they they focus on safety, connection, and wellness. You can find them at apichaya.org. A partner can be found so many places, but start off with you can go to, start off with moving beyond. Uh, movingbeyond.co and also check out aparnaray.com uh, thank you so much for your time today it was such an honor and a privilege uh, I learned so much and I hope I continue to do so thank you for inviting me to chat with you have a wonderful rest of your day I can see sunshine out here so I hope you and your dog and your your dubber um, get Go and sit somewhere outside in the sunshine. Thank you, Aaron. Bye. Get some sun as well. Bye. Oh, oh yeah, me. I will. <laughs> Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Bye. Bye.